It seems like only yesterday that I began um, some interim preaching for you, and uh, that was back in August, and here I am preaching my last sermon um, today under unusual circumstances. We have a couple of people, three, in the congregation as I now look out, and so um, forgive me if I stare at you the whole time. Um, but it has been an incredible honor and privilege, and I am grateful to have had this opportunity. The sermon today is entitled, Longing for an Unexpected Cure. And this sermon is a continuation, really, of last week's sermon. If you weren't here or didn't listen online, Last week's sermon was about the loving kindness of God, that God's very nature seeks us with mercy and grace and love. This week I continue on that theme by going to the book of Matthew. And we will be reading in Mark Chapter 5, beginning with verse 21 to the end of the chapter. So get comfortable. When Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a loud crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. I want to put a duh in there. You see the people crowding around you, up against you, his disciples answered. And duh, you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. 
he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jarius, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all the commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, come, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around and she was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to tell, let anyone know about this, and told them to give her something to eat. So this is a day where Jesus encounters many, many people. We know that his popularity was growing. It had gotten to the point where they followed him everywhere. He had to search to be alone. We know in this text that he tried to use the boat to get over to the other side of the lake, but they were there too. I think he understood in his heart that they were more interested in what he could do than in who he was. But he helped them anyway. He was like that. Early in his ministry, he had already healed many, a man with leprosy, a paralytic. The crowds were especially fascinated with his ability to drive out evil spirits which he had also done on several occasions. I imagine that they all love the show. Probably one person wasn't too keyed on what Jesus was up to. That would be the owner of the 2,000 pigs when he found out they had it all drowned because Jesus wanted to save one lunatic of a man. That's a lot of pigs and a lot of of money. Right after this scene, something quite unusual happens. A rather important man approaches Jesus. The common crowds are one thing, 
But this is a synagogue ruler, and this is something different. We know that Jarius being a synagogue ruler is important to Mark because he mentions that four times in eight verses. The fact that Jarius came to Jesus in the midst of the crowd, right out in broad daylight, is a big deal. He humbled himself before this new prophet because his need was desperate. Remember another story of a synagogue ruler? Remember that Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, in the darkness, so no one will know. But Jarius is not afraid because his need is desperate. His dear daughter is dying. And I think all of us who are parents understand the lengths to which we would go to save our children. We are told that by the end of this story, she has died. But also at the end of the story, Jesus brings her back to life. We have the benefit of looking backwards. We have the benefit of hindsight. We get to look back through Christ's ascension and back through Jesus' resurrection and even back through the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But imagine being right there. Jesus tells the mourners, why are you crying and wailing? She'll soon be up. No wonder they laughed at him. They believed that she was really, really dead. And she was really dead. But we also know what happened in that room. Jesus brings her back to life. We have the advantage of hindsight. We know and proclaim who Jesus is. We know of his resurrection. We know of Lazarus who comes back. He seems to have power beyond their imagination. No wonder there's a crowd. The healings, the exorcisms, but it seems really early in Mark for Jesus to show this full extent of his power that he has power over death itself. Think of it, a young girl, about 12 years old, really dead, and Jesus takes her father and her mother and a couple of disciples and enters into the room apart from the crowds, apart from the professional mourners, apart from everyone else. And Jesus takes this small family into the bedroom. It is an intimate scene full of grief. Is there hope? So I wonder what Jarius is thinking. Jesus had whispered to him, believe. I wonder what his wife is feeling. Was Jesus too late? This synagogue ruler, a man of some importance, 
watches as his dear daughter breathes again, moves again, stands again, walks again, and even eats again. A 12-year-old who grows up, probably marries, has children of her own. And I can imagine the story she tells again and again. I imagine her in church, standing and testifying to what Jesus did for her. Death to life in the power of the only true Savior, Jesus Christ, her Lord. But there is another character in this story. Back on the road, back to the swarm of people, we get to look back and see that another miracle transpires. A woman reaches out from the crowd that is pressing in on Jesus and touches just a bit of his garment. And she is also changed forever. On the surface, we see another person who is sick, another person who Jesus heals. But there is so, so much more to this story. So much beneath the surface. For 12 years, this woman has suffered, but not just physically. We know that she has been bleeding for 12 years. In case we forget how long that is, she has been sick as long as the little girl has been alive. It's been a long time. What we don't immediately see don't immediately realize is that in Jewish law, when a woman bleeds, she is considered untouchable, usually once a month. But this woman, she is ignored, yes, but literally, she is not to be touched at all. In a sense, for this period of time, she is a social leper. Absolutely no physical contact. Can you imagine no physical contact for 12 years? She could not have been married. It would have been impossible. If she was, her husband was long gone having divorced her and having blamed her for her illness. Remember the common idea then that all suffering is punishment from God? This era, error counted, recounted. In the book of Job, this error of all suffering is punishment is countered by the book of Job and countered by Jesus himself. I wonder if she believed it too, that it was all her fault that she contracted this disease and sickness. Remember the time also that there is no social security, no disability insurance, 
Many a woman who were rejected for some reason by their husbands resorted to prostitution just to stay alive. Remember, Jesus addresses the issue. In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us that there was a loophole in the law that was misinterpreted. It said, you, if you were a Jewish man, could only have 12 wives a year. You could divorce any one of them for any reason. He could divorce her if she burned his dinner. And so a woman divorced takes on the shame and becomes, in many instances, a social outcast. And so this woman could have, in other situations, turned to prostitution to stay alive. But this is not an option for the woman in our story. No one would have touched her. Not even the lowlifes who use prostitutes. No one. How did she exist? Rejected by the well-to-do and even by the very lowest scum of society. She must have been a beggar. We are told that she spent all of her money on doctors. And rather than becoming better, she got worse. If anyone knew her problem, they would steer clear of her completely. I imagine she moved around a lot. Unknown, alone, outcast, unclean. Physically sick, yes, but also emotionally tormented, I am sure. She represents to us an utterly broken woman. A disease had come, no fault of her own, but she probably believed that God had done this. I would imagine that at times she wished herself dead to end her suffering. But then she hears a rumor. A new prophet is coming, healing the sick, casting out demons. And so desperately and against the law, she reaches out anonymously, she hopes, and touches not him, but the hem of his garment. I'm not sure we realize the extent of Christ's healing that day for this woman. It was not just physical. Her tortured existence was completely transformed. It was like a resurrection, a new birth, a new life, new potential. She is restored on so many levels. She is restored. 
But I found something curious in the passage that I had never seen before. Go with me to verse 29. So after this woman touched Jesus' garment, it says, Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she had been freed from suffering. Even before talking to Jesus, she was healed. Even before he knew who she was, she was healed. She was freed from her physical ailment. She knew it. She just knew it. But let's continue in verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched you? Verse 32. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and... Fear, with fear and trembling, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I want to suggest this morning that there are two different ways that she is healed. Because in two different instances, we are told that she is freed from her suffering. She is, first of all, freed from her illness. But secondly, she is freed, I believe, from her fear and trembling. When he speaks peace to her, it frees her not only of this physical suffering, but he goes a step further and frees her from all non-physical suffering. And he begins by calling her daughter. Can you imagine being alone and ostracized with no one around you to touch you and love you? what that word would have meant to her. Daughter. And Jesus expresses in that one word all of the emotion of the need she had. Just like this synagogue ruler was desperate that Jesus raise his daughter to life. Jesus takes on that role for her. And says to her, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. After 12 years, 12 years of physical painful illness and after 12 years of emotional torment he says to her daughter 
be at peace. Breathe. Embrace life and wholeness and hope again. Be freed from all of your non-physical suffering that you have endured. Let it go and be on your way. Where? Back into community. Back into the ability to be touched. Back into the ability to be loved. Be at peace. I imagine her in church, maybe sitting next to Talitha, giving her testimony to what Jesus has done for her. If you will allow me some license today, when we look at the plight of humanity, so to speak, from a theological perspective, our deepest problem is that we are broken. Broken particularly by sin. Our deepest problem is that sin has, in one sense, separated us into an isolation. But the gospel that we preach, and hopefully the gospel that we have experienced for ourselves, is that we cannot in any way be freed from our sin and our suffering in our own strength. The gospel is that God loved us so much that he provided for us everything that we need. Jesus has enacted for us our salvation from sin. He died once for all, for all sin. And if we reach out and we receive it, God's grace calls us forgiven. Mr. Wesley actually preferred the word disease to the word guilt when it comes to inner sin. Not only are we to be freed in the form of being forgiven our guilt atoned for, but we also need a deeper healing of the disease of sin within us. Just like the bleeding woman and the little girl, we need the healing of the disease within us. But we know that Christ, our great physician, provides this kind of healing. The guilt and the disease of sin can be taken away, according to us Nazarene folk. But if you'll go along with me, I want to suggest that the human predicament, there is so much more in us that needs to be healed beyond the sin question. Not everything is a sin problem. And we find ourselves just by being human, experiencing suffering. of all kinds 
and in all ways. Remember the woman. She will be our model. She was ostracized, abandoned, unloved, alone and lonely, rejected and marked, despised and empty, poor and without hope, sad, afraid, maybe hungry, desperate. She was desperate. And Jesus heals her, not just of the disease, but from the effects of the disease. And so after she had already been healed physically, he says to her, daughter, go in peace and be freed from this suffering. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I know that many of us long for that. In encountering her, he encounters us. And I imagine that he might have said, go in peace, be freed from your suffering. For I will create a people who will represent my body, my hands, my feet, my heart, who will accept you and welcome you, who will care for you and embrace you. They will be your family. You will not be alone. I will create a community of joy who will provide you safety. They will feed you and comfort you. They will be like me. You can set aside your desperation, for they will be your home. And so I start today I finished today, rather, where I started. We are church. And we are church with a mission to be Jesus to those who suffer. It might even be within the church community where a person feels all of this extra burden. We are called to comfort and love each other. But there is more. This month uh, is declared by our denomination as the anti-trafficking month to recognize the plight of these particular groups of people. I have a friend and colleague, Reverend Dr. Rondi Smith. She is a remarkable person. She was a pastor in the Nashville area. But God called her in a very specific way. She has established a home 
for women who have been trafficked. She resigned from her church, bought a large farmhouse on a lake, and began a new ministry called Rest Stop. Their mission is to restore survivors and to stop the oppression of trafficking. And so she has built there a large residential treatment for survivors with 24-hour residential care, with on-site counseling, case management, various daily activities to provide these women not just with rest and restoration, but also to train them for new jobs, to heal them at a deeper level. They have an incredible sense of belonging and community, and they have been at it for over a decade. And I read of women who have truly been transformed dozens and dozens and dozens of women through the years. They care not just for their mental, emotional health, they also care for them spiritually and have watched them receive Christ and grow and heal at that deepest level. We proclaim the gospel around here. I want to ask, is the gospel, the good news, powerful enough to impact the pain of this world, even to these women? We have to believe that it is. Is the gospel, the good news, compelling enough to draw those who suffer not just from sin, but from all sorts of wounds. Compelling enough to draw them to the heart of God. Is the gospel compelling enough? We have to believe this. Is the gospel, the good news, bold enough to offer hope to the hopeless light in the darkness? We have to believe this. If we believe the gospel is enough for the brokenness around us, across the globe and next door, and if we believe the gospel is enough for the brokenness within us, we must speak out, preach it loud, and lead our church into the shadows where people hide and bleed and cry and plead for someone just to touch them with a different kind of love. So many times I've told myself to give up Facebook, particularly lately when it's much more about ads than connecting with people that I love. But it, as you know, it also offers all sorts of inspiring quotes. 
One of those quotes stopped me in my tracks one day. This is especially as a theologian and a theologian who has written a book on suffering and the meaning of evil. It stopped me. Here's the quote. I wanted to ask God, since there is so much pain and suffering in the world, why he didn't do anything to stop it. And then I realized God was asking me the same question. So my last sermon for a while, two simple points. For us who would be here in the room, go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. And then go in God's name to touch those who suffer around you. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for their intentionality. But I pray that you would call us even deeper into the mission of the church as you have ordained and created it. That we would truly be light to the world. That we would be that person who touches someone who is suffering. And I pray, Lord, even now, that you would call specific individuals in this congregation to some sort of ministry outside the walls of the church. Maybe you would be calling some even for the first time. Maybe some of our teens, our college students, but even those later in life, you have a purpose for our existence. And when we follow that purpose, our life is filled with life and joy and meaning. So make us, make us more into the likeness of Jesus that people will know that we are different, will know that we are lovers, that we are people who accept into our home, so to speak, even those that the world will not touch. So guide and direct us, speak and call us. We want to be your church. In the name of Christ, we pray, amen.
Come see the scars of love upon his hand. The king is in the room. We'll watch the darkness flee at his command. Who is this king? probably predict the benediction today. Son, daughter, go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. And then through his healing and power within you, go in God's name and touch those who suffer both in and outside this congregation. Amen.